It's a land that we Westerners tend to romanticize as mythical and dreamy, high in the Himalayas. But Nepal has undergone profound changes in the last decade as it establishes a fledgling democracy after tragically losing its royal family. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we get a perspective on Nepal from an American with a keen grasp on the character of that fascinating land. He tells us how magical moments are still an everyday occurrence in Nepal. There's these islands of magic, these refuges, these oases of spiritual splendor that put you somewhere completely different in another spiritual realm. Travel writer Jeff Greenwald clues us in on the political and cultural pressures facing Nepal today and the personal connections that keep him coming back year after year. I never get tired of it and I'm never bored by it and it always surprises me. We'll also check in with our listeners. Tell us where you're going to make your spirit soar. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot has changed in Nepal since the hippie trail days and magic bus rides to Kathmandu back when I was a student backpacker. And while it's no longer a kingdom, there's still plenty of enchantment. Travel writer Jeff Greenwald's published a thought-provoking memoir about the changing scene in Nepal. He'll join us in a moment to update us on life in the Himalayas, what he learned during a particularly poignant stretch of the 1990s, and the rewards Nepal still offers the inquisitive traveler. And later in the hour, we'll open the phones for our listener travel reports. Share places that have had the biggest impact on you. Thanks for joining us as we find the magic in our world today on Travel with Rick Steves. Prolific travel writers settle in different places for different reasons. Jeff Greenwald's written a lot of books, and he's well-known for his ethical traveler work at ethicaltraveler.org. And Jeff has spent a part of every year since 1979 in Nepal. Anybody who's visited Nepal knows about the magic of that place, and Jeff's latest book is called Snake Lake. Jeff Greenwald joins us now to talk about Kathmandu. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Rick. Snake Lake. Now, this is a memoir of your times in Nepal. What does Snake Lake mean? Well, in ancient prehistory, the Kathmandu Valley was an inland sea, and it was inhabited by a race of sacred snake gods called Nagas. The actual name of the Kathmandu Valley back in those geological times was Nagra, the Tank of the Serpents. And what does that have to do with Kathmandu today? Well, after the lake was drained by the god Manjushri, who cut a big gorge in the foothills and let the water drain out, all the snake gods and goddesses had to relocate so they uh, found little aquifers and ponds that still existed in the Kathmandu Valley, and, and those places are now shrines called Nagpokari, or Snake Lakes. And I was living near one of those uh, lakes during the time that this book takes place, which is the spring of 1990. Just hearing you talk about that, it just I've only been to Nepal once, and there's this fragrant sort of mysticism, and you, you see these dreamy scenes, and you, you feel like you're just floating through a cloud, and uh, you just feel like... Did somebody slip some hashish into my last doll soup, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's just that dreamy kind of environment. And you've got this story you've said in Nepal, and I want to talk to you about that. But first of all, it's a very complicated uh, political context. We've got a situation where you've got a, a divine monarch, you've got an assassination, you've got a revolution, you've got people's movement, you've got democracy. Give us the context in the last generation of what has happened in Nepal politically. Okay, here's a real quick primer about the past 20 or so years. So Nepal, for about 240 years, up until about 1990, was a monarchy under this family called the Shahs, and they ruled as divine beings. The king of Nepal was thought to be the incarnation of Lord Vishnu, the great preserver of the Hindu trinity. So in 1990, the current king of Nepal was a guy named Birendra. His real name, his full name, Sri Panch Maharaja Birendra Bibikram Shadev. He was ruling the country, but not very effectively, and there were some huge problems going on with India at that time. And the people of Nepal were suffering a lot. Nothing was getting into the country. Uh, there was tremendous poverty. The king, meanwhile, was fabulously wealthy. Nepal, one of the poorest countries in the world. And looking around the world, seeing what was going on in places like Romania and the Berlin Wall coming down, the people of Nepal thought, hey, you know, we can do that. We can have a revolution, too. So I was there as a journalist in the spring of 1990 reporting on what seemed would be this coming revolution. And to jump ahead, the revolution, of course, as a matter of historic record, did happen in April of 1990. The king was kept in the palace as a constitutional monarch. Then about five years later, in 1995, that horrible Maoist insurrection began and a civil war started that lasted 10 years and cost about 12,000 Nepali lives. 
right in the middle of that nightmare in 2001, June 1st, 2001, the unthinkable happened, which is that the, the crown prince, his name was Dipendra, went on sort of a drug-crazed, um, I don't know what you'd call it, just he melted down, pulled out an automatic weapon and massacred his entire family, including the king, his mother, the queen, his little brother, his little sister, his aunts, his uncles, everyone who was in the palace at this family function was wiped out. And, um, of course, that king who was killed was one of the main characters in my book. And during the time of this book, you know, no one really knew that was going to happen 10 years later. Anyhow, that was a terrible situation. The Nepali people still, I don't think, have recovered from that. Uh, five years after that, in 2005 and 2006, they threw out the next king, who was the brother of the king who was killed, and in 2006 turned the country into a republic with no king at all. What used to be the royal palace, where so many of the scenes of my book are set or imagined, is now a national museum. And Nepal is kind of stumbling towards self-determination and true democracy. Today, when you visit, as you have for the last 30 years, do you feel it's a good time in Nepal, or is there progress, or is it a broken people? I wouldn't go so far as to call the people broken. The people of Nepal have an astonishing spirit that's very resilient. They've seen massacres before. They've seen huge changes of governments and transitions, earthquakes and floods, all kinds of things. But I would say the country is broken. The republic is broken. They can't seem to get it together and really agree on a constitution or on a way to really govern by rule of law. There's still a tremendous amount of corruption, a tremendous amount of disenfranchisement among the, among the people. And when I was there, I felt there was these huge powers on either side of them, China and India. And in your book, I was reading that the greatest fear among Nepali people is the Indianization of their country. Well, that seems like not so bad now compared to the Sinoization of Nepal. I, back in, when the book is set in 1990, the Himalaya were still a pretty formidable barrier separating Nepal from China, or occupied Tibet, if you prefer. You know, since then, China's poured an enormous amount of money into Nepal, built loads of roads through the Himalaya and directly into Kathmandu. So though the influence from India is really huge and in some places overwhelming, it's an influence of democracy. I mean, India is, after all, the world's largest democracy. The influence from China is a little more nefarious, like what's going on there? The Chinese are really stepping in, trying to place limitations on the freedoms of the Tibetan community in Nepal. And that, that sets off real um, alarm bells and raises red flags for a lot of people watching what's going on in Nepal. And how is that complicated by the remnants of the British Raj and the um, you know, British Empire uh, influence? Well, I don't know if it's complicated by it. The Indian England always had very close ties. England, of course, had colonized India. Nepal was never colonized, but the British did get their Gurkha regiments and so forth from Nepal and had a very kind of professional close relationship with them. That's still the major source of income in Nepal, even today, as I think it was in 1990, is pensions to Gurkha soldiers by the British. You know, I was just at the, uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I was at the uh, Olympic Stadium construction site in London for the 2012 Olympics, and the entire security force is Nepali Gurkhas. That was true in Haiti as well. You know, the, the Gurkha soldiers are being basically vilified for the whole cholera epidemic. Wow. But those Gurkhas are extremely uh, ever-present, you know, in yeah. peacekeeping around the world. And they've given uh, tourists the most exciting souvenir, I think, when you go to Nepal. Right? Is that, <laughs> that wonderful, do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> the Gurkha knife. The, the Gurkha knife with the cute little sharpeners. Yeah, actually one of those is a circumcision blade. Is that what those little blades are? <laughs> describe, a Gurkha, yes. describe a Gurkha knife, because that is the, the coolest souvenir. <laughs> Well, it's a big knife that's that's curved. It almost looks like a shallow boomerang. It does look like a boomerang, Raz yeah. Razor sharp. Uh, they use it to uh, behead animals during their annual Desai ritual. And there's the two smaller knives. One of them, I believe, is used for circumcision. Maybe I was told that as a joke. Uh, the other one, I'm not quite sure, but um, I, maybe sharpening pencils. I, I really don't you know. You know, this is a very interesting pitfall for travel writers like you and me. You know, we can earnestly ask somebody, what's this for? And, and they can tell us something. And, <laughs> and I, I'm inclined to believe it if it sounds good, but maybe it's not it, it for It is a nose hair trimmer. <laughs> it is a nose hair trimmer. I'm Rick Steves. <laughs> We're talking with Jeff Greenwald, who's spent a, a part of every year in Nepal for the last 30 years. And Jeff's latest book is all about his time in Nepal. And it's, it's called Snake Lake. Jeff, when you... When you talk about Nepal, we talk about this tumultuous history they've had, 
And of course, they've, you know, their royalty's gone. They're supposed to be a democracy now. But you still have this holdover from people who believed that their king was a direct descendant of Lord Vishnu and their king was divinely ordained to rule these people without question. And you walk around the city today and they, the royal family's dead, but you've got the living virgin goddess. How does this mystical, medieval kind of approach to things hold over in the modern age? People are trying to be modern, but they've got, they've got tradition in their blood. Okay, things like the question of the living goddess, who's usually this prepubescent girl, as soon as she bleeds, she loses her position as the living goddess. She's more a symbol of, for the Kathmandu Valley, of the Newari ethnic group who settled, you know, the old Snake Lake, the old Kathmandu Valley. And even today, though she's still considered to be a protector goddess, there's a lot of controversy about it. And some people have gone as far as to say that taking this little girl, testing her, putting her in this, you know, uh, rarefied environment for a certain number of years is really a form of child abuse. And that's uh, an issue that the Nepalese are grappling with right now very, very strongly. And many traditions, the tradition of animal sacrifice, which was, you know, is a huge part of various celebrations in Nepal through the year, is being questioned by people who believe it's very, very cruel and should be stopped. We're really seeing Nepal right now in a transitional phase. The time when the book is set, 1990, you know, things were not quite that evolved in terms of things like, you know, women's rights and animal rights as they are now. A lot has changed in those past 20 years. But one thing hasn't changed, and if I can sort of backtrack full circle to the beginning of your question, and that's the sort of nostalgia for the king. The king might not have really been an incarnation of Vishnu, the great preserver, but the king was, in many ways, the only sanctioned, social, traditional glue that could hold this disparate country of nearly a hundred different ethnic groups together. From the Sherpas of the Himalaya to the Taru of the Tarai deserts, you know, how can you find one person to speak for all these different ethnic groups? Now that the king is dead and the monarchy is over, they're going to have a really hard time keeping the country from splintering. It's such a beautiful and fragile country. I mean, it's poor when you think India is a wealthy country to the south. A lot of aid comes from India, right? Yes, tremendous amount of aid comes from everywhere, but most of the trade, overland trade, does come up from India. And the people are so charming. One of my favorite memories is children clasping their hands together and, and, and wishing the traveler namaste. What does namaste mean? It literally means I, I greet and respect the God that lives within you. I acknowledge the divine within you. <laughs> namaste. Jeff Greenwald explains what he learned studying under a Buddhist master in Nepal and how that's impacted his life as we continue our conversation about the scene today in Nepal in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour... We'll turn to you, our listeners, for tales from your travels that stand out as moments of revelation. Feel free to clasp your hands and say namaste as we continue our explorations of Nepal. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jeff Greenwald about Kathmandu, about Nepal, his personal memoir of his times there, and his book is called Snake Lake. Now, you tie in with your book, Snake Lake, a personal story also. Uh, Buddhism is a big part of your book and your brother's suicide. Can you talk about that for a minute? 
I will. Uh, while I was there working as a journalist and reporting on the upcoming revolution, um, I also began to study Buddhism. I'd written a book, Shopping for Buddhas, which is probably my best-known book. And though I, I wrote that book and it achieved a wide currency, I didn't know very much about Buddhism. So I received an invitation to study Buddhism with a young, very charismatic, and very knowledgeable lama named Choki Nima Rinpoche. And a good deal of the book is my ongoing education in Buddhism and what it meant to someone like me who was basically, you know, coming in with no prior knowledge almost of what Buddhism was. So I think for people interested in a primer on Buddhism, it's, it's very interesting on that level. All of us who travel, Rick, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, when we go to these exotic countries, we often feel like, you know, if something's going on in our, in our other world where we've come from, we feel really torn. We feel it's, it's just hard to immerse ourselves. We feel pulled back and forth. This was also going on with me. Though I was living in Nepal for many, many months at that point, I was getting these letters from my younger brother, Jordan, who was spiraling into a very deep depression. And looking at the letters, reading how, how dire they were, I could see there was only one place this would end. So though I was desperate to stay in Nepal and report on this revolution in Shangri-La, which could actually liberate the Nepali people and make my own career, frankly, I was also torn with the notion that I probably should go back to the United States and try to somehow help out my younger brother, who was in this real severe psychological mess. I remember how poignant it was when you wrote about that in your book, and you had to go home and, and be with your brother and miss the action in Nepal. Yes, and in fact, I missed both things. Uh, you know, I, I did get home, but um, I was too late. And uh, I not only missed the revolution in Nepal, but I, I really wasn't uh, wasn't able to be of terribly much service to my brother, although um, his fate was made a little bit easier for me to deal with. Or I was helped a lot by the Buddhist studies that I'd undertaken and so forth. So, Jeff, how did Buddhism help you cope with this personal tragedy? Well... It's very difficult to say how it happened because it's actually still in process. But I think that one of the main things is that Buddhism really helps give you a sense of clarity and stability. If someone we love dies, especially through suicide, we often tend to blame ourselves, wonder what we could have done differently, take on a lot of the, the guilt and shock and really internalize that. I think through Buddhism, I was able to realize this wasn't my fault. This was a choice my brother made. I wish him well in his future lives, whatever they may be. I'll do whatever I can to make his passage easier. But I am not responsible for his choices as much as I loved him and as sad as I am by, by what, he, what he's done. Now, when you set out to write this book, did you know where the book was going? Is this something you looked back on, years of experience, or did it unfold as you were taking your notes? That's such an interesting question. It's really strange how this book came together. It has a sort of a, a complex structure. You know, those three themes we've been talking about, Rick, through this interview, the revolution in Nepal, the aspect of Buddhism, and the aspect of suicide, it wasn't until years after those things occurred, after those months in 1990, that I realized that all three of those themes shared in common the idea of liberation. There's the social liberation aspect of revolution, the personal liberation aspect of Buddhism, and a different kind of liberation that comes with suicide, a sort of ignorant way of liberating yourself from suffering. And I wanted to first tweeze these things apart and examine them, and then somehow knit them together into one narrative about liberation in its many forms. And how did your love life in Kathmandu play into all of that? Well, there was a, a woman who I fell in love with when I was there, a female photojournalist. In the book, I call her Grace. The actual woman upon who she's based did not want to be written about directly. She's still very much alive and kicking. She had her own arc towards liberation, which I think is one of the more surprising and interesting subplots in the book. What happens to Grace, uh, who she actually turns out to be, and how that, that's resolved. Boy, this is what a mix. I mean, just wandering the streets of Nepal is a, is a fascinating novel in itself. I remember when I was there, I would just walk in a different direction each day, and I wouldn't need a list of sights. You just come upon things. Take me on a walk through a neighborhood in Kathmandu. Isn't it true? And that was one of my favorite things to do there, especially at night when the traffic dies down, was just go for a walk and see the place transformed. And you just stumble across these little temples that are somehow hidden during the day, but at night surrounded by butter lamps and with the smell of incense emanating from their, their little openings. You peer inside, you see the god or goddess, you do your little prayer. 
Uh, you continue on, you see a, a bunch of cows nosing at vegetable scraps. You look up and see the crazy hodgepodge way the wires are strung up from the transformers. Then you'll hear the blare of a Radio Nepal commercial out of someone's window and a baby crying. Someone might pour a bucket of slop out of a window. You'll, you'll go past the closed-up gold and jewelry stores, and it's like a kaleidoscope that's constantly turning around you. Even today, with the Kathmandu Valley so congested with traffic and, and you know, so dirty in its current chaotic state, there's these islands of magic, these refuges, these oases of spiritual splendor that take you just out of the mindset that you live in most of the time and put you somewhere completely different in another spiritual realm. I'd never get tired of it, and I'm never bored by it, and it always surprises me. Jeff Greenwald, that's, I got to say, that sounds trippy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just stating the facts, my friend. Just it sounds trippy. And when you, you know, this was sort of the freak street. Tell, tell me the story of the hippies in Kathmandu. I mean, it is an understandable place for hippies just to settle down. I mean, that was maybe back in the, in the old hippie days. But there's something, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely trippy about Kathmandu. What's the scene right now with pie and chai and ganja and hippies and so on? Well, it used to be you could take the magic bus from Europe and go through Afghanistan and Iran and end up in Kathmandu, right? And that, that was the big route on the magic bus. That route has since closed. You can't really do that anymore. Uh, hashish was made illegal by King Burendra in 1973 when he was coronated. But Kathmandu is still a magnet for people who are just looking to explore exotic music, exotic art. Buddhism certainly is a tremendous draw for people coming to the Kathmandu Valley with its huge Tibetan Buddhist presence. You can study Hinduism there and the Advaita traditions, jewelry making. You know, of the many years I've been going there, I have to say I don't see so many drugged out tourists stumbling around anymore. Most of the people who are settling there and living there are people who are doing photography, anthropology, filmmaking, Ayurvedic medicine. My wonderful friend Carol Dunham, who's uh, working with local herbs and, and empowering local people with businesses, that kind of thing is what people are doing now. James Jambrioni, who runs the wonderful Indigo Art Gallery of contemporary Newarian Nepali art. People who are taking the place seriously and really giving as well as taking from the culture. That, that's more of the kind of explorer you see there now. Jeff Greenwald's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His latest book, Snake Lake, offers a personal narrative of the dramatic times he experienced in the 1990s, weaving together his life in Kathmandu with events back home in America. Jeff's sense of humor and his keen insights are why I think his books, like Shopping for Buddhas and The Size of the World, are bestsellers. You know, when you wrote in your book about Bhaktapur, a town, a little village, I guess, eight miles from Kathmandu, it was the scene of a riot mm -hmm. and part of the uh, unrest. When I was there, it was kind of like an advent calendar, and there was all these little windows you could open. It was just a medieval wonderland. Do you still get that feeling of medieval artisans and so on when you go to a place like Bhaktapur? Absolutely, and Bhaktapur has really, you know, I, I exploited, has negative connotations, but, but they have turned it to their advantage you now have to pay a pretty hefty price just to get into Bhaktapur and look around. And the money is used to preserve and conserve the many gorgeous temples and carved window frames and cobbled streets of Bhaktapur, you know, so that you can sort of wander around it and, and feel like you're maybe in the 16th or 17th century. So tourists pay to get in, but local people are going about their, their basic, just going through another century? Well, they're living their, you know, their lives in the contemporary world. They may be spinning pots or carving wood by day, but they're, you know, they're on the internet by night. I remember going into the markets and actually buying cooking ware by the weight. When you asked a merchant how much a tea kettle would cost, he would weigh it. Mm -hmm. In the towns of Patan and Bhaktapur, there's all these shops selling old metal plates and cups and bowls, and they're sold generally by weight. It's astounding the beautiful things you can find. Tell me about those Nepali hats. The topis. <laughs> Do you wear one? Topis are... Uh, no, I don't think they look good on most Western people. <laughs> they you know, look except goofy on Western people. I thought it was... Except certain elderly, distinguished men look good in them. But basically, I think the, the best comparison is that a topi is like a tie in the West. It's a kind of hat, a brimless hat that the Nepali men wear in many different designs. And there are very informal ones. Then there are the ones you'd wear to meet the prime minister. There's the kind you'd wear at your daughter's wedding. So they serve Nepali protocol, much like the Western tie serves men here. If you were to describe it, it's kind of like a an enlisted man's cap in the army or something, isn't it? But it's like a rainbow of colors? 
Yeah, it comes in an infinite variety of colors, uh, most of them made with local fabrics, some of them very attractive. And I, I, it's true, Rick, the urge to wear them has struck me, and I, I have put them on and then quickly taken them off because they look great on Nepalis, but not on me, not so much. If you want to make local girls giggle, you just wear one of those hats as a tourist in Nepal. That's true. And all these male tourists are wearing female Sherpa hats, so that's another thing altogether. Oh, my goodness. What about the mean monkeys on the monkey temple? They're still mean. You know, I mean, they'll pretty much leave you alone, but if you're walking up the steps with a stack of bananas, don't expect to be left alone. I mean, they're going to they're gonna come after you. And there's the occasional frenzy, which you want to avoid at all costs. They're attracted to your biscuits or your glasses or whatever. Anything shiny or edible, they will, they will come and try to steal. And they're, they're generally very peaceful. I don't know of any cases of rabies from them, although that's probably because I'm not paying attention. And they mostly conglomerate, as you know, around Swayambunath, which is the monkey temple, and Pashupati, which is the temple where they cremate the bodies along the Bagmati River. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're venturing through Nepal with Jeff Greenwald, and Jeff's latest book is Snake Lake. Jeff, you wrote with vivid uh, detail about leeches, and you wrote as if you had experience. Tell us about the leeches. (laughs) There's two kinds of people in the world, people who think leeches are absolutely hideous and repulsive and people who just treat them like an annoyance. Unfortunately, I belong to the former category. I abhor leeches, and yes, I have been out in the jungle with leeches. Describe it. They come at you like a little slinky, don't they? They're like little bits of macaroni that (laughs) that move and crane towards anything that's got blood in it, and then they slither onto you, they attach themselves to you, and they suck your blood. They're not harmful. They're not like mosquitoes or ticks. They don't spread disease. They're actually used in medicinal purposes, as you know. They still use leeches to bleed people to help with infections and so forth. But they're just, like, repulsive. But I must say, Rick, that through my Buddhist education, I've come to realize that they are also sentient beings. It's wrong to pour a bunch of salt in them and watch them wither and die. It's wrong to kill them. It's wrong to hurt them. Just flick them off. You know, I'm trying to do it. Take a few deep breaths. No, they're, they're horrible. What can, what can I say? <laughs> can I? There's one big scene in the book where politically leeches figure in, where um, there's a comparison made between the leeches out in the forest of Nepal and the leeches in the royal palace. And it sort of leads to an epiphany in the part of a Nepali journalist. But yeah, I don't like them very much. Now, you befriended a, a high lama in your experience. Of what value is that? Chokinima Rinpoche is still teaching now, 20 years after the, the time in which the book is set. Uh, he presents the ideas of Buddhism with such clarity and such humor and such wisdom that you just realize this is not, Buddhism is not a religion. It's really more of a social contract that you make with your fellow creatures in the world. And it, it's more of a science. Unlike Judeo-Christian re- religion, which, you know, tells you to love your neighbor and so forth, Buddhism doesn't say love your neighbor. Buddhism just says, look, everything that's alive in this world suffers the same way. We all age. We all get sick. We all die. We, none of us want to be hurt. We all want our offspring to thrive. Respect that in everything that lives. Don't create any more suffering for any living thing than you really absolutely have to. So it's really the teaching of compassion and um, just the wisdom to realize, as modern physics shows us, that though our senses show us this vivid three-dimensional world, really things are more or less formless. There's so much space between atoms that if we were their size, we could basically drive a truck between them. (laughs) So everything looks really solid and has a lot of integrity, and we all know we're here. But are we really? I mean, uh, we really don't know that we are. So just realize nothing lasts forever. Treat everybody with respect and basically be kind. What is the High Lama who is your friend's name? Choki Nima Rinpoche. And the word Rinpoche is an honorific meaning precious gem. And he taught you this notion of uh, Buddhism as a social contract between all living things. Those are my words, but essentially that's what the Buddha taught and what he is uh, conveying to us are those, are those teachings. How to meditate how to be a good person, how to be happy, how to relax, how just not to take things so seriously. That in itself is worth flying to Kathmandu for. It is, and many, many hundreds of people every year fly to Kathmandu just to attend the Saturday teachings of Chokinima Rinpoche, which are free, and they occur near this temple called Bodhanath, and uh, they're transformational. I've seen people go in and come out sometimes a day, sometimes weeks, sometimes years later, after years of study, really transformed by, by what they've heard and what they've learned. 
and uh, they become much better people, and I think the world's a better place for it. Are people in Nepal operating from a mindset of abundance or from a mindset of scarcity? That is a fascinating question. I, I am not in their mindset. From outside appearances, it often seems they're operating from a mindset of abundance because they're so generous with their time, with their food, with anything they might have. They're so giving and, and generous to visitors and to people within their own family or tribal community. In reality, within their communities, you know, there's complaints. There's dissatisfaction. Uh, wells don't work. They, they don't have clinics. They don't have schools. Uh, often the food is really limited, and they suffer from these things very, very badly. Maybe they complain a little less than, than we tend to. Maybe their anger is a little less of an issue because of their religious tradition. But they definitely suffer from privation while living as if generosity were the most important value. And I might just add here that those snake gods I talked about earlier that inhabited the Kathmandu Valley when it was a lake— and now live in the little snake lakes. Those snake gods, you can only become a snake god if you've lived a life of extraordinary human generosity. So the, the, the value of generosity is really pervasive in that culture. Jeff Greenwald, you are tying a lot of things into this book, Snake Lake. It's a complicated <laughs> tapestry of really, really challenging thinking. When people read this book, how do you want them to benefit? What is your agenda for putting this complicated book together? I'd like them to understand a little bit about what, what's meant by the word liberation. In a personal sense, what it means for them, what it would mean for them to feel like they were free or liberated, and also to just have an understanding of the Buddhist teachings and realize that liberation is not a state of affairs, as someone says in my book. It's an ongoing process through our lives and that there are many different paths to it, and some of them are certainly far, far more effective than others. You can learn more about Jeff Greenwald's travels through his websites, ethicaltraveler.org and jeffgreenwald.com. Jeff's latest book, Snake Lake. Jeff, thanks for taking us to Nepal. Thanks for the interview, Rick. It's been absolutely wonderful. Namaste. Namaste. I sit beside the dark beneath the mire cold gray dusty day the morning lake drinks up the sky Kathmandu I'll soon be seeing you and your strange bewildering time will hold me down of course you don't have to venture to the shadow of Mount Everest to have amazing travel experiences the world's full of places and people that can delight, teach, and maybe even change us. Up next, let's hear your tales from the road. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Lotte Rinchen from Bhutan, North of India in the Himalayas, I travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> That's good. We have high expectations when we travel overseas. And sometimes, a place impresses us in ways we never anticipated. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're turning to you, our listeners. Tell us about places you've been in your travels that left a deep impression as we look at enjoying what our world has to offer. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can also email us anytime the spirit moves you at radio at ricksteves.com. And there's a message board for your comments and travel reports. It's all in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Vivian's on the line in Bend, Oregon. Vivian, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Do you have some ideas on how travel can broaden our perspectives and change our outlook? Absolutely. Um, 2001, I walked across northern Spain about 500 miles from the uh, Spanish border town with France called Roncesvall, all the way across to Santiago in Galicia on the uh, northwestern side of Spain. Okay, this is the famous Camino de Santiago, right? The, the centuries-old pilgrimage route across northern Spain. That is exactly Spain. what that is. Wow, 500 miles. Mm-hmm. And why did you do that? 
Well, I was inspired initially by Shirley MacLaine's book, The Camino. Uh-huh. Whether you like Shirley or not is a whole other thing, but I always liked adventure travel. And there was something about walking across a country that appealed to me. So I read her book, and that sort of brought out some really good points about what there would be to see along the way, cathedrals, monasteries, churches, historic buildings, and just following this ancient path that so many people had walked throughout hundreds of years. So I packed up my backpack in the following year, headed to Spain, and spent 32 days walking the 500 miles so across had, the country. So you did, you did one month, basically, to walk 500 miles. Yes. So that's about 15 or 18 miles a day. Correct. And every night, would there be a refuge you'd stay in, a, like a simple hut where you'd just give a donation or 10 or 15 bucks or something? They were a little bit more um, than a hut. They were sort of along the lines, for the most part, like hostels. Right. So on the Spanish side, there would be anywhere from 10 to 100 people in a dorm room. But after you've walked eight hours a day you and sleep. that many miles <laughs> and you're doing it day after day, you actually don't really notice there's even 10 people in a dorm, never mind 100 people, because you're so tired at the end of the day. Now, what was the camaraderie like? Because I understand you got pilgrims and seekers uh, from all over the world doing this hike, uh, hiking 500 miles uh, on the medieval trail on the way to Santiago, this remote town in the northwest of Spain. What was the camaraderie like on, on the trail over the course of the day or, or in the refugios at night? The camaraderie is amazing. It's something, I think that was one of the most life-changing ex- parts of the entire experience, was that you didn't really know um, what people did for a living. That didn't come into conversations for maybe mm, three or four days once if you saw <laughs> people over and over again. Right. Because people had other things to talk about and other things to share, and there was just so much of being in the now, not who was the doctor and who was the brain surgeon or who was the dishwasher. Everybody it, was equal. I bet it's a great equalizer. Trip. Yeah, it's a great equalizer. And uh, tell us what it was like on that final day when you walked into Santiago de Compostela and you put your foot on that scallop shell and looked up at the Cathedral of St. James. That was pretty amazing. It was a major accomplishment. And the nice part was that along the way, I had met so many people from around the world. And uh, a number of us, maybe seven or eight of us, had actually met back up the night before, not, not by plan, but by chance. And so to actually have made these connections and these friends previously along the trail, and then to be able to walk into Santiago together, um, it gives me goosebumps now. Oh, that's great. So it. you just happened, luckily, to be together at the last refugio, the last um, mm-hmm. uh, hut or, or, or hostel. And then the people that you meet on the trail, I mean, originally it was Roman Catholics doing a pilgrimage, uh, you know, a relic kind of thing. That's but, right. But today it's a lot more than just Roman Catholics on this trail, isn't it? Today it is a cross-mix of anybody and everybody, um, people who are looking to do it for um, religious purposes, spiritual purposes, or those who just want to do it for sport. Um, and some people just want to do it because it's there and they can. What was it like when you finally stepped on that scallop shell and had finished your journey, your pilgrimage? It was almost as though my journey wasn't finished. Although it was an immense achievement in my life at that point, I just felt as though there was more to do. And so what I did was I went, took the train back to France and I started walking the French side of the Camino wow. through France. You really got into that pilgrimage thing. I only had 10 days that I could walk further that time. Yeah. Uh, but the next year and the year after, I went back to France and I did the entire 500 mile of the uh, French route from Le Puy that connects the Camino um, in Spain again. You know, i got to say, there really is something that those of us who have never done it is magical about the community Santiago. Talking to people like you, it's, it's routine that it literally changes people's lives. And I would it, it does change people's lives, and you sort of gravitate to go back. And friends that I made back in 2001 walking in Spain, I still have that main core of people. There were about 15 of us that sort of banded together then, and we're still in contact now. And we have met up with a number of people throughout the years. I'm just curious. I hate to get so practical here, but you spend 30 days doing this. What would you guess your, your costs were for that 30-day experience? Probably today, you could probably do it for about um, $35 a day. So for $1,000, you can take this one-month experience yes. and change your life. You certainly can. And, and I bet if anybody goes and does it, even a portion of it, 
they will go back and they'll do some more. Or they may just stay home and get a new car. And they they just might do that. (laughs) Vivian from Bend, Oregon, thanks a lot for sharing. Thanks very much for your time, Rick. Happy travels, Vivian. Happy travels. And Ray's on the phone in Ocala, Florida. Ray, thanks for your call. Hi. Last summer, I had a chance to backpack through Europe by myself, basically. And the last place I stopped off was Athens. And the most vivid memory that I can think of is sunset on Mars Hill in Athens during the summer. And as the sun melts into the mountains, its rays just seem to spill out like wax onto the city. Hmm. It's just sort of painting the city in gold. It is the most magical moment. Then as the night slowly comes, the Acropolis lights up from above. And then in the distance, I don't know if it's like the smog of the city, or, but it just causes the, the city lights to actually twinkle in the night. Wow. So you have, you have this complete drama unfolding during sunset on Mars Hill. It's, you have the marketplace below, and then you have the Acropolis above, and you're at this perfect perching point right there at Mars Hill. Ray, let's set the physical uh, scene here. First of all, that's a very shiny rock hill. I mean, the rocks are shiny. Do you remember how shiny they are? Yeah, and it's actually pretty slippery. You've got to be very careful. Very dangerous. And you've got the hordes of tourists that have been um, hiking up and down to the Acropolis to, right. Your, to your right. And then below you, on your left, you've got the, the old Greek agora, 500 years before Christ. That was the center of the city. And then you've got sprawling out in all directions like a white concrete rash, four million Greeks in their metropolis, Athens. Four out of every ten Greeks are packed into that city. And then you've got that hazy, smog-induced, kind of rosy uh, atmosphere at sunset. That smog just sort of enhances it because it causes the, the city lights to twinkle. And then you're standing on a place that has a lot of history for Christians. Do you know the importance of Mars Hill that way? I actually read that passage in Acts where Paul actually spoke to the Athenians for the first time. And it's just really just surreal to think of the... Um, just to get the geographical context in which he spoke that. So think about that. Paul was the great missionary, the great traveler, spreading the news of this little, tiny, unknown religion. And he went to Thessalonica, and he wrote then later a letter to the Thessalonians, right? And then he went to Corinth, and he wrote a letter to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians. And he went to Athens, and he tried to talk the Athenians into becoming Christians, and I don't think he did very well. (laughs) But he stood on that hill, and he gave it his best effort, and right. 2,000 years later, a lot of Christian travelers go there as a kind of pilgrimage, and a lot of just travelers go there to soak in the magic of Athens at twilight. Absolutely. What's ironic is the fact that I think the street, the main drag that is named after one of the people that actually was converted during that time when he spoke, um, I think it's the Dionysio. Yeah. Era. That used to be just a scary, dangerous slum, and now it's been uh, gentrified and cutesied up, and now it's a beautiful, paved, strolling pedestrian boulevard circling the Acropolis. And you can see the, the, the new affluence and the love of life in contemporary Athens, the sprawl of the city, the historic Acropolis, the rosy sky, and you're standing on that shiny rock just like St. Paul did 2,000 years ago. Absolutely magical. I didn't, I didn't want to leave. Ray, thank you for your call. That is really a good image. Thank you for having me. All right, bye. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and we're checking in with listeners just like you at 877-333-7425. We're interested in travel reports on places that may have stoked your spirit, places you'd go back to in a heartbeat. And Evelyn's on the line in Las Vegas, Nevada. Evelyn, thanks for your call. Hi. So, yeah, um, I wanted to share my experience of traveling to France. I'm originally from France, but I have not been going there for several, several years, and I just discovered the south of France, what we call Provence Coast, uh, just between Marseille and Toulon. And I spent some weeks in summer and fall. It was just fantastic for swimming, snorkeling, and discovering some small fishing towns just off the shore. It doesn't have all the busy spirit and all the thing going on in Saint-Tropez or Nice, and that was just amazing. And the hmm. little place I really enjoyed was Sanary, S-A-N-R-Y, and I just discovered that they have had historical diving sites that were um, Jacques Cousteau and his colleagues starting the uh, first uh, scuba diving. Sanary, S-A-N-A-R-Y. That's correct. Just an amazing little place. Jacques Gusteau liked that place then. Yes, yes. And I believe it's 
Bhutan still has a house there. And, and there's a little diving museum, historical diving museum, with the first equipment they used for diving. And there's just amazing little diving spots with wake ships ah. and planes also. It's historically just amazing. There were Austrians and Germans intellectual exiled before the war. They were escaping, you know, uh, Nazism in, in Germany, and they uh, lived in Sanary. And also there was a little intellectual community there, which was very vibrant, and a lot of spirit is left there. It's just amazing. Just to spend some time, just to really fully enjoy the spirit, it's just a fantastic place. And the scenery and the water are just amazing. So now this is different because most people think on the French Riviera, the Côte d'Azur, but you're saying the Provence coast, which is further west than the Côte d'Azur. That's correct. It's between Marseille and Toulon. And that's called Provence Coast. And that's really where you have the spirit of the sea. There's uh, a little town called Bandol? That's correct. It's just nearby. Sanary, Bandol, Sifour. That's just little communities nearby. I like Bandol because of the wine. When I'm in southern France, I love Bandol. Yeah, they do have amazing wine, Côte de Bandol. That's just some of the top. Rosé. Rosé is just fantastic. I just get so excited when I'm in the south because I can find Bandol, but I didn't know it was also a a little village worth checking out. Definitely. Bandol and Sanare are just amazing. It's just very small. It's still very vibrant, but yet it doesn't have the hype of high touristic. Yeah. It's very livable even all time of the year. That was in winter, there's always something going on for locals too. So there's a community spirit and the whole, you know, region, these little communities are just amazing. Evelyn, I have to say, I went to Saint-Tropez in the Côte d'Azur with all the jet set and the nightlife and the fancy people. And I tried to enjoy it and I just thought it was too pretentious. Mm-hmm. I wanted to enjoy the pétanque and the uh, pastis and all of these kind of traditional southern French uh, joys of life without the pretense. Sonnery has all this. That way they do play pétanque. It's, it's a serious business. And, it's, uh, <laughs> and, and pastis and, and they have fantastic food, but it's just so genuine. So the trick is, the word is the Provence coast and the specific town on the coast is Sonnery, S-A-N-A-R-Y. Yeah. Evelyn, merci bien. Au revoir. Au revoir. Kathy's on the line in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Kathy, thanks for your call. Thanks. One of the experiences that I wanted to share is um, we first went to Europe about 10 years ago for our first time. We actually both quit our jobs and just took a year off, went to Costa Rica, learned how to speak Spanish, um, started in Europe in Spain, so we're fairly comfortable um, and then we went to uh, Florence was our first stop in Italy. And the first night we were there, um, we picked out a little, just a hole-in-the-wall restaurant. And we were really, really nervous about going in because we didn't speak the language. And so we were walking back and forth, looking in. It was mostly blue-collar workers, and, and you know, everybody was sitting at the same table, you know, how they do in Europe. And so um, we finally got up our nerve and walked in and sat down. And, you know, being our first time in Europe, you know, everything was new to us at the time. And we both ordered a fresh mozzarella salad because it sounded good. And it was something that we recognized on the menu. And so they brought the salad and set it down in front of us. And my husband and I looked at each other because we weren't sure how to eat it. Well, the guy sitting right next to me, I mean, he looked like Luca Brasi from The Godfather. <laughs> I mean, he was that, you know, big and kind of intimidating looking. And he realized that we were you know, having trouble deciding on how to, to do this. So in these very large, exaggerated hand gestures, he basically showed you how to put the olive oil on it and, and cut it up and everything. And it was just, you know, it just made you feel like you're going to be okay. <laughs> Isn't that great? So you had a big kind of a little bit scary looking guy sitting next to you. You're in a restaurant sitting at communal tables as they do. Yes. And you order something from the menu you thought you recognized and you get it and you're not sure what you do next. Mm-hmm. And he came to your rescue. Yeah. And we actually wound up going back to that little restaurant uh, I think three times while we were in Florence. You found your own hangout. Yeah. I mean, it was such a great experience, you know, because, you know, you're the first time over there. You're intimidated because you don't speak the language. And that was at the very beginning of our trip, and, and we spent three months over there. And by the time we left, we realized that people are the same everywhere. They just 
speak a different language. And when you go to the local hole in the wall, the blue-collar restaurant, and you sit at a communal table, you're doing everything right. Uh-huh. That's, that's the way you connect. Uh-huh. You could be afraid of that, and you could go back to your hotel where there's a restaurant probably, and you'll eat with other tourists, and you'll pay double the money and get half the quality, and you won't uh-huh. make any friends. Well, and, and that's where all the really rich experiences, at least for us, came from, was going to those little hole in the walls, you know, where you, know, you didn't see very many other Americans there. And that means you can go to a place that doesn't even have any famous sites, and you can find the culture in the experiences. And the cool thing about so many European countries is the cuisine is, is fundamental to the culture, and it's not a class thing. Blue-collar workers and fancy people, they all enjoy the cuisine equally, and you don't need to spend a fortune to tap into that local cuisine, especially in Italy when you go to those hole-in-the-wall restaurants. Exactly, and you know what turned out to be a really good experience through that was not knowing what you were ordering, getting it and experiencing it for the first time. And I wound up eating rabbit for the first time in that same little restaurant. And, Kathy, I bet that big Godfather guy still remembers you just like you remember him. <laughs> I'm sure he probably so does. we should give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we are a blessing for those people that go to that same restaurant day after day. Here comes a clueless American. Let's turn him <laughs> on to our cuisine. Yeah. Kathy, thanks a lot. Happy travels. Thanks. You too. Up on the sun, this time tomorrow, fly, walk, or run. But this time no sorrow First stop, Jackson Next stop, Shangri-La Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help to Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee, and to Milt Wallace at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. The conversation continues online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can post your travel reports, listen to archives of past shows, and search them by topic or date. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your